Now, I apologize. This is not a Christmas or Advent sermon. Um, you know, this is one of those times in the year where uh, Joel's gone. I, I kind of get to speak on whatever the Lord lays on my heart, and this is something I've been thinking about. Uh, you may get the impression that I'm still processing it, still thinking about it, uh, but it's something I did want to share with you this morning. Uh, kids, I'm sorry, there's no children's church, so, you know, pay attention, and uh, hopefully it's not too boring for you. So. <clears throat> Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 7, uh, we read the story of Stephen, who is one of the first Christian martyrs that we know of. Uh, Stephen is dragged out into the street. Uh, he is accused uh, of blasphemy, essentially. Uh, and in response to these accusations, uh, Stephen not only does not back down from his allegiance to Jesus, he in fact gives an incredibly powerful testimony. It's worth a read, uh, just any time you have the time. And the testimony climaxes with Stephen telling them that as his death draws near, he can see the doors of heaven opened, and he sees Jesus of Nazareth, the risen Lord, standing at the right hand of Yahweh, God of creation. And this throws his accusers into a rage. This is what puts them over the edge. We read they pick up stones, and they stone him. They kill him. At the end of that, we get a very interesting little narrative detail from Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts. Luke tells us that standing there, looking on, approving, perhaps even supervising, is a man named Saul of Tarsus. And we're told that when it's done, when Stephen is dead, those who threw the first stones bring their cloaks and they lay them at the feet of Paul perhaps seeking his approval, uh, perhaps indicating that they stand with him, one of the chief persecutors of the followers of Jesus. By the time we get to Acts chapter 9, this is still Saul of Tarsus. He's a man, we're told in verse 1, breathing out murderous threats against the followers of Jesus. And yet... A scarce few paragraphs later, and maybe as little as a couple weeks later, we read this, Acts chapter 9, verse 20. And immediately he, Paul, Saul, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the same man? who made havoc in Jerusalem on all of those who called upon the name of Jesus? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving to them that Jesus was the Christ. Now I submit to you that when you read that or hear that, the question you should ask is the same question everyone else is asking, which is, is this not the same man? I mean, is this not the same man who supervised happily the killing of Stephen? Is this not the same man who maybe just a few weeks ago was breathing out murderous threats against any and all who professed Jesus as Lord? Is this not the same guy who went to secure authority so that he might arrest any followers of Jesus he found in Damascus. Isn't this the same man? 
The answer, which will become clear throughout the rest of the book of Acts, is emphatically no. This is a man completely transformed, utterly changed, a man who has been shaken to his very foundations and rebuilt anew. And yet, of course, in the usual sense, this is the same man. This is still Saul of Tarsus. And it should make us ask, what can explain that kind of transformation? Uh, A change so complete in such a short amount of time. What caused this change that confounded the Jews that listened to him? Well, it's not a trick question. We all know the answer. It's right there, right in the middle of Acts chapter 9. On the road to Damascus, Saul encounters the risen Jesus... And he recognizes for the first time who he really is, which is the rightful Lord of all creation. He is the one who stands at the right hand of God the Father. And in view of that reality, Saul does the only thing he can see that is sensible to do. He gives his full and undivided allegiance to Jesus. And that one act begins a process for Paul that will completely upend his life It will completely remake his identity. It is a process that will radically change him just as it changes every single person who believes it. Paul's story, I think, powerfully illustrates two essential and inseparable truths about the gospel. First, it illustrates the truth that the gospel is for everyone, even for Saul. And in general, I have to say, I think our church and the church generally does does an excellent job communicating this truth. Uh, A great job communicating that no one is beyond God's redeeming reach. Even the most active persecutor of Jesus and his followers still can receive salvation because of the work of Jesus. Notice, and this is important, Paul is saved not after his transformation, not after he changes, not after he cleans up his act. He is changed while he was an active, murderous enemy of God. When Paul was at his worst, God sought him and found him and saved him. And he would do no less for any of you. But there's a second truth, one that I think we must not separate from this first And yet one that I fear we communicate much less effectively. And it's this. That the gospel about Jesus is explicitly and unapologetically formational. That is, it is the aim of the gospel to produce change in the lives of every single person who receives it. I mean, listen, there can be no doubt the gospel changes Paul radically in a very short amount of time. And it actually, it keeps changing him over the entire course of his life. The gospel changes the disciples. We get a unique uh, sort of first-person view of that happening throughout the gospels and the book of Acts. We watch as the good news about Jesus changes them. In fact, if you read the New Testament, you'll be struck by the fact that anyone who understands it, anyone who lays hold of it and internalizes it, is changed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul puts it like this. He says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Not 
if some, peop- some people who are in Christ, not most of the people in Christ, not a select anointed few of those who are in Christ, if anyone and everyone who is in Christ is a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. When you accept the gospel, when you accept Jesus, not just as your Savior, but as your Lord, it will change you. You will not be the same. I like to think of these two truths like this, and I hope maybe this will help you think of it too. There is no one so lost that they cannot be saved, and no one so righteous that they will not be changed. No one so lost they cannot be saved, no one so righteous they will not be changed. Now, as I said, I think we do a good job with the first truth. We're comfortable with it, we hear it often. We hear it preached and proclaimed. What I'd like to do this morning is to explore the second. I want to ask what it means for us, for you, that the gospel is formational. And then I want to conclude by looking briefly at how that formation happens. So first, what does it mean practically? What do I mean when I say that the gospel is formational? Well, I think really you need two components to this point, all right? First... It means that without the saving work of Jesus, we are all of us, in one way or another, enslaved to sin. Look with me, if you would, at Romans 6, verses 16 through 18. Here in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 16, Paul writes this. He said, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have now come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness." Paul says that the truth about our situation apart from Jesus, apart from the gospel, is that we are not only sinners, that is, we are not only participants in sin, we are enslaved to sin. In fact, the persistent, relentless testimony of Scripture from Genesis 3 all the way through to the end is that apart from God, we are actually unable to live in a way that leads to life in human flourishing. Uh, Another way to think about it is that sin not only produces a debt that we cannot pay, it enslaves us to a way of living that we cannot escape on our own. It enslaves us to a pattern of living that leads to misery and to alienation and to death. What we require is therefore not only someone to atone for our sin, but for someone who can also set us free from that slavery to sin. Um, From the time I was a teenager, maybe even earlier, I became the official tech support in my household. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with this, uh, this pattern. Uh, You know, it was nothing to do with me. I just, I was growing up at the right time. I grew up with computers. I was comfortable with them. Uh, My parents, you know, looked at it like it was some alien technology that had just showed up in the house someday. 
Uh, but my mom, in particular, to her great credit, made an effort from the very beginning. She knew that they were going to be with us for the long haul, and she wanted to learn to use it well. Uh, and so she dedicated herself to that. But, I was going to say occasionally, but the truth might be more like frequently, she would create for herself a problem. Uh, she would have some kind of disaster on the computer, and then she would come to me for help. She would say, you got to help me. Something's gone wrong on the computer. And I'd say, well, well, what happened? I don't know. Everything's gone. So what did you do? I don't know. Did you, did you click on something? Did you, no, I didn't do anything. Well, you know, I know all that's not true, right? She clearly did something. Uh, so I said, okay, take me over there. Let's see what's going on. So she'd take me back to the computer. I'd poke around for a little bit, see if I could figure out what the problem was. I'd try a few things, and I'd fix it. And my mom, inevitably, every time, would sit there, sit next to me, watching carefully with a spiral notebook open. And she would say, well, hold on, hold on, slow down, slow down. What are you doing? And I, you know, teenager that I was, would roll my eyes and I would sigh. I'd say, don't worry about it. I'm just, I'm going to fix it. It's going to take forever if I have to explain this to you. And she said, I know it's going to take longer. But if you don't explain it to me, I'm going to create the same problem again. I said, well, that's fine. Just come get me. I'll fix it again. And she said, no, it's, don't you understand? It's frustrating to not be able to do what I want to do on the computer. It's frustrating to sit down and not be able to accomplish what I want to accomplish. I don't like it. I don't want to use the computer this way. I want to know how to not create problems in the first place. I didn't like that at the time. But you know what? She was right. And it's similar, I think, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's similar to the problem that we have as human beings. You see, because of sin, we not only create consequences for ourselves that we cannot put right, although we do, we also are enslaved to a way of living that we cannot escape. Because of sin, we deal with the frustration day in and day out of not being able to live the way that we want to live. Because as Paul would have it, we are slaves to sin. It's not just that we participate in it, it's that we cannot help but, do other, but do other, to do otherwise. And the good news this morning is that Jesus actually deals with both. If you have given your allegiance to Jesus, then you know your destination. What God did for Jesus on Resurrection Sunday, he will one day do for you. The consequences of your sin, Jesus began to put right on the cross, and he will one day put everything to rights when he returns. And should you sin again, and you will, those sins too are covered, paid in full. But I'm here to tell you that the good news is even better than that. Knowing that you were enslaved to sin, Jesus not only paid your debt, he set you free from a life of slavery. Look at verse 17 once more. I love this. Paul says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have now come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has claimed your allegiance. What is he talking about there? Well, what Paul is describing is what I want, am calling this morning formation. You have been freed from a pattern of living that led to misery and alienation and ultimately death. 
and you are now able to obey a new pattern of teaching that leads to life. Having set you free from sin, God now wants to reorder your entire life, your entire self, so that you might be remade according to a new pattern of fully human life that he revealed in Jesus. What I want to tell you this morning is that if your understanding of the gospel is simply that on the cross, Jesus paid your debt, he paid the price for your sin, that's a great start. But it's only half the message. It's only half the benefit, half the blessing. Jesus has not only made atonement for your sins, he has set you free. On the cross, he broke forever the power of sin and death the power that led to slavery, the power that could only ever lead you to a life of alienation. He made possible a new way of living, life according to a new pattern, the pattern that God had always intended for humanity. It's a pattern that leads to life, into maturity, to wisdom, into human flourishing. And if you are not striving to live according to that pattern, then you are failing to take advantage of the freedom that Jesus died to give you. Seize it and let the Holy Spirit transform you as he transformed Paul and the disciples. This coming year, we're going to talk a lot about formation, about Christ being formed in you. And what we are trying to do is to invite you into a process of transformation a process of reordering your life and your identity and your priorities around your allegiance to Jesus, a Christ-centered life. We want, together, to commit ourselves to conforming more and more to that new pattern that's been revealed in Christ. Well, that leads, I hope, to my next question that I'd like to touch on, which is, okay, that's great, but how does formation happen? How does formation happen? Well, as I say, Pastor Joel is actually going to talk more about that next week, specifically, uh, and we're going to be returning to it all, all year in one way and another. But this morning, I just want to touch briefly on three primary ways that I think formation happens in the Christian life. First, we are shaped by God's story as revealed in Scripture. Now, this happens in many levels as we read and hear and study God's Word, over time, as we understand God's story and our place in it, that story should transform our identity and our purpose. What you'll learn if you immerse yourself in God's story is that you are not who other people say you are. You're not who our culture says you are, and this is a little harder, you're not even who you believe yourself to be. You are, in fact, who God says you are. And that means that our purpose comes not from society, not from inside of us, but from our participation in God's plan and story. And slowly over time, as we immerse ourselves in that story, as we strive to live within it, we will be reshaped by it. And, and I want to add uh, that while God's word has a power all its own, this isn't magic, and it's not going to just happen without any effort on your part it's the product of a process that I'm calling formation. And so the question I'd like you to ask in reference to this point this morning is, uh, what story are you allowing to form you? Because I promise you this, you are being formed and shaped by some story. It's just a matter of which one. 
Are you immersed in God's story? Are you reading it and allowing it to challenge the other voices you hear and to challenge your old pattern of living and thinking? If you aren't, it's maybe asking, worth asking yourself what other stories and voices might be shaping your identity and purpose. God's story will shape you. It will form you, I promise. But you need to read it and hear it and encounter it for it to do its work. So that's the first way. Uh, we are formed, we are shaped by God's story. Second major way that formation happens is that we are shaped by the church, which is to say by corporate worship and Christian community. Uh, Kevin Van Hooser, a Christian theologian, has, I think, helpfully compared participation in the worship services of the church as a workout, like going to the gym. And I, I like that image. Uh, he says, like a workout, participation in a worship service will shape you as you participate in it. All right? So just like if you lift weights consistently over time, that activity will reshape you physically. He says, participation in worship over time will reshape you spiritually. And specifically, what it should do, if we're doing our job right up here, is it should shape us so that we are better formed for participation in God's story. Someday, I'd love to dig into this at greater length, but for this morning, I'd encourage you simply to think about it. And think about how that idea might reshape your expectations for our time together. What is this time together here doing? I hope it's shaping you. Uh, two quick examples. I hope it's shaping you first by helping train you to orient your life toward Jesus. That's what we do when we come here. Uh, we, we sing songs that orient us toward Jesus by directing our attention toward him by exalting him and lifting him up with our voices together. Uh, we orient our lives toward Jesus by teaching from the word that reveals him to us. And, and we are doing that, our hope is, that we are orienting you toward him, not just for your time here and not just for Sunday morning, but so that when you wake up Monday morning, the direction you start heading is toward Christ. Another example might be that, that one of the things we hope to do here regularly is to provide space for confession, repentance, and rejoicing in your forgiveness. And again, we do that not just so that you'll do it here, though we hope you will, but so that it will become easier, and I might even say natural, for you to do in the rest of your life, like a sort of spiritual muscle memory. So now, you find yourself at home and you've, you've lost your temper with your family. Or maybe you're at work and you realize you just participated in, in some gossip. What do you do? Well, hopefully it'll come naturally to you. You'll confess and you'll ask forgiveness. You'll repent. You'll, con you'll commit to living differently in the future. And then you'll rejoice because that debt is paid in full. And you'll rejoice because you know you have the freedom to act differently in the future, the freedom to live according to a new pattern. You see, we don't just want you to do that here. We want to help shape you on Sunday morning. We want to be shaped together so that we will reflexively live that way in the rest of our lives. So we're formed by God's word. We're formed by corporate worship. And third and crucially, we are shaped by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And friends, this is the secret sauce. To the extent there is a secret sauce, this is it. All right, it's where the good news gets even better. Not only has our debt been paid, not only have we been set free from slavery to sin, it is in fact the case that the power of God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in us to empower us so that we might live according to the pattern revealed in Jesus. I want to read one last passage for you today from Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 13, and then I'm going to jump down to verses 22 to 25. Galatians 5, 13, Paul writes this. He says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Here I think briefly we can see all these pieces from this morning coming together. Through Jesus, we're not only saved, we are set free, we are called to be free. Not so that we can return to, a, to slavery, to sin, but so that we might use that freedom to live as God had always intended for us to live. In fact, we should regard our old pattern of living, Paul says, as having been put to death on the cross. What is available to us now, and only because of the work of Jesus, is life by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in you and works in you to enable you and empower you to live according to this new pattern. In other words, the formation produced by the gospel isn't a matter of willpower only or mere self-help. Okay, Paul, Paul isn't writing to the Galatians and just saying, hey, do better. He says the Holy Spirit is at work in them, in you, to produce that new pattern of living. We've not only been set free from the power of sin, we now have the power of God at work in us, which enables us to live differently and to produce fruit according to that new pattern. You are not just free, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live differently. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I watched a documentary about Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, called Won't You Be My Neighbor? It's a great documentary. I'd recommend it to any and all of you who haven't seen it. Um, I think part of what makes it great, uh, two things. One, the filmmaker starts out, I would say, cynically. Uh, he starts on this project assuming that if he looks, what he's going to discover is that the Mr. Rogers that you see on PBS is different than the man you would find when the cameras are off. Uh, and so he sets out expecting to find that, you know, this guy, I mean, sure, he plays a nice character on TV, but in real life, he's got to have ulterior motives. Uh, he, he's got to be so full of himself. There's got to be something else to the story. The second thing that makes it great is that unlike most documentary filmmakers, he actually has his mind changed as he explores his subject. You see, what he discovers as he gets to know people who were involved in the TV show, as he gets to know people who met Fred and, and worked with him in real life, and as he finally meets Fred and his wife, what he discovers to his amazement 
is that Fred Rogers is exactly who you think he is when you watch him on TV. He's the same guy. He is actually a humble, good man who cares deeply about all the people who have been brought across his path. And after this has dawned on him, he has this moment where he's standing on some steps watching as Fred is, is mobbed on the street by all these people who recognize him and just want to meet him and thank him for, for the impact he had on their life. And he stands there with, with Fred's wife and he looks over at her and he says, man, has anyone ever asked you what it's like being married to a saint? And in my favorite part of the whole movie, she looks back at him and she says, yes, all the time, and I hate it. And she said, but here's why. Because Fred, when they say that, what they mean is, Fred came out of the womb like this. And it's not true. He is a normal person, just like you, just like me. He has flaws and struggles. He has a temper. And he has worked very hard every single day to overcome those. And when they ask, when they call him a saint, I feel like they're belittling the effort that he has put into becoming the man that he is today. I don't like it. What she is describing, friends, is what I would call the process of Christian formation. Mr. Rogers is a believer. What she is describing is a lifelong process of Fred's partnership with the Holy Spirit as he worked and labored day in and day out to live according to the new pattern that was revealed in Jesus and made possible by Jesus. And the good news about Jesus is for everyone. But the good news is not only that he died on the cross and made atonement for your sins, though he did, it's that he also broke the power of sin and death that had enslaved us. Your debt is not only paid in full, you have been set free from the pattern of living that brought you to that place in the first place. You've been set free from that pattern of living that was going to lead inevitably to alienation and death. And what God wants for you, what I want for you, is to live in that freedom through scripture, through worship together, by the power of the Holy Spirit to live according to the new pattern that God has revealed in Jesus. It's for that pattern of living that you were created. It's for that freedom that you were redeemed. As we close, I just want to give you a few minutes to reflect. Here's what I'd like you to do. I want to ask you to consider where in your life God might be calling you to a new pattern of living. And so if you would, I'd just like you to take a couple minutes just to quietly bow your heads and to search your hearts. Let's go ahead and do that now if you would. I'd like you to ask yourself, honestly, where in your life you see places that you are captive to those old patterns where is it this morning that you need the truth of the gospel to penetrate one more time and to set you free? Where is it that you need to be shaped by God's word and God's spirit? Would you just take a moment?
Jesus, we come before you this morning and we want to bring before you those, those areas of our life where we still see uh, the lingering chains of slavery. Father, I just confess, I just this past week uh, had my struggles with patience revealed to me in an in a embarrassing fashion. Lord, I need help. And I pray that your spirit would be at work in me to produce that fruit. And Lord, help me to do my part. Uh, help me to labor daily, uh, to live according to the new pattern, to recognize that I have been set free from the old pattern and that a new way forward is possible. I pray for these brothers and sisters, whatever that area might be for them. God, I pray that they might, it might be brought home to them in a powerful fashion that, that those ways of living that frustrate them and sadden them, that they have been freed from those, that you have broken that power. And I pray that you would help them. I pray that you would raise up faithful brothers and sisters around them to walk with them as they try to live according to the new pattern. And Lord, most of all, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work powerfully in them to make that possible. We thank you, Father, one more time that you not only have paid our debt, but that you have set us free. Help us, Lord, to live in that freedom. In your name we pray, amen.